want to say thank you to our students and teachers and administrators from GLA. Uh, one of my children attended, and it was a wonderful experience for her, and I highly recommend it. For those that might be considering a location for their adolescent child's education, you'll find it to be an excellent choice and a wonderful experience with the staff and the students. I also want to say before I begin this morning a big thank you to those who have sent me cookies and cards, especially the, the cards that are written by little kids. Those have been a real blessing to me. And for the other encouragements that have been sent to me, I try to make sure we connect, but if I haven't, I just want to say how much I do appreciate those. Let's pray. Lord, here we are seeking your provision, your presence. And I'm asking now, Lord, that you would bless us as we've gathered. May the divine impress be upon us. May our hearts be open to your spirit. Guide in, Lord, what was said and what is heard. And may your church be strengthened because we've been here. Bless our individual walks with you and now bless this corporate experience together, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1904, in the month of February, there was a German theologian that was born. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer would be number six of seven or eight children. His father was a psychiatrist and neurologist, and he was afforded a very exceptional education. But much of that would be thrown away, you could say, as a matter of spiritual resolve as he considered the rise of Adolf Hitler to power in Germany and the nationalization of the Christian church. Bonhoeffer disapproved of fascism and right from the very beginning said so. And it was to cost him dearly. His father, uh, a, a psychiatrist and neurologist, all of his family members exceptionally well educated and he of the same opportunity. But something happened to Bonhoeffer along the way. He became sensitive to the social injustices, especially of the Jewish people. And he was a opponent of a number of the ideologies that stood behind the, fas the fascist uh, government of Hitler. You'd be encouraged to know that this man, for all of his great learning, failed his driving test three times and uh, the fourth time he managed to pull it off. It just so happened that when Hitler was elected to power in 1933, within two days of that event, Bonhoeffer was on the radio. And some of the things he were, was saying would turn out to be exceptionally prophetic. He was talking about the fact that the church should not be caught up, nor the nation, in the idolatrous cult worship of the Fuhrer. In the middle of one of his sentences, the radio broadcast went silent. And nobody can prove today whether or not uh, the Third Reich was behind that or not, but probably not too many are wondering. It turned out that Bonhoeffer was ordained in one of the German churches. The problem was, was that the church was struggling with its relationship to the government. And in the experience of that struggle, Adolf Hitler declared the elections of the church invalid. And in the experience, he reconstructed the election and the church came out, not surprisingly, very loyal to his government. In the midst of all this, Bonhoeffer had a number of opportunities to travel to the United States. One of them came in 1938. Some of his own family members fled to England. One of his sisters was married to a Jewish person. When Bonhoeffer found himself in America on the last trip, his conscience was stricken because it was going to be a safe haven for him in the midst of the descending curtain of oppression that was coming to his own country. He only stayed two weeks. He returned home, and in the midst of that journey, he was banned from being in Berlin. He was banned from publishing or writing or preaching. He ran underground seminaries where he would go from place to place teaching the young pastors, commenting 
on his trip to America as a potential security zone for him. He said, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult portion in our national history with the German people, or I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war. Christians in Germany will have to face this terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. Two months after he was engaged, he was arrested, kept in a prison, Tegel Prison. Later, he was moved uh, to a number of different places, one including a concentration camp. And almost as the war was over, the diaries of a operative inside a ministry of intelligence were, were discovered, and he was named as a potential in the conspiracy to kill Hitler. It was only a matter of days before he was tried without witness before a Gestapo court. And on the morning of April 9, 1945, he was walked out completely unclothed to a gallows. The war was almost over. But the Gestapo would stop at nothing of fulfilling the Fuhrer's wishes. And there he was hung. Some suggest it was quick and over. Others suggest that it was a long, drawn-out ordeal. No one will ever know. But he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I want to read just one paragraph to you from it. He says, there is no truth towards Jesus without truth towards man. Please think about what I'm saying. There is no truth towards Jesus without truth towards man. It's a little bit like what Jesus said when he said, if you're on your way to the altar and you remember there's a problem between you and someone else, stop and leave your gift and go make it right. There is no truth towards Jesus without truth towards man. Untruthfulness destroys fellowship, but truth cuts false fellowship to pieces and establishes genuine brotherhood. We cannot follow Christ unless we live in revealed truth before God and man. I'm here to say at the beginning of this message there are many who have paid for the gospel freedoms with their blood, Huss and Jerome. Tyndale. We think about Latmer and Ridley, the great English reformers, as they were getting ready to light the pyre, the, the group of sticks about which the faggot, which is a term for where they would be burned to death. One turned to the other and said, Be of good courage, we shall light a fire today in England such as shall never be extinguished. I want us all to understand that the freedoms that we experience as American citizens in this country at this moment were purchased at the price of blood. And I want to challenge every one of us to stand in the shadow of the shadow maker Jesus who walked all the way to the cross so that we could have eternal liberty and be reinstated in the family of God. We're in the last of a series of five sermons dealing with the, the greatest want of the world. If you have your bulletins, take it. Let's say it one last time together here. Education, page 57. The greatest want of the world, say it with me, is the want of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. As we approach the end of this age, we might hear the echoes of Winston Churchill, who in 1946 said he could see an iron curtain descending upon Eastern Europe. Last week I mentioned from the book 1984 the concept of the ministry of truth. 
If you've been at all attuned to the experience of the United States of America and much of the world in the last two years, you've recognized that free speech and the concept of arbiters of truth, the delisting and the quieting, as it were, of alternative voices has been a part of our society. Not too terribly unlike that 1930-something speech of Bonhoeffer where in mid-sentence he was cut off. I want everybody here today to understand that Christianity has always been a high-cost religion. Its lowest cost has been in the last four decades of American life. Seventh-day Adventism has been a minority religion that's been called a sect and spoken against. And for years, Walter Martin included us in his kingdom of the cults. Eventually, we were taken out, not without some controversy. I'm not so sure that being left in would have been such a bad thing for us to realize that we must pay a price of singularity and uniqueness, peculiarness, as it were, to be true to the gospel. Those who have suffered at the hands of communism have found the actions of the American and other Western nations of the last two years during the whole debacle surrounding contagion. They find especially these actions unacceptable. But for those of us who would rather have the security and not trouble ourselves at all with paying a price for the dialogues of independence, some of us have gone along to get along. But I need to tell you this morning, at the beginning of this message, there's a difference between sitting down or bowing down and standing up. And it's imperative that you believe in something, as Dr. Bakioki used to say in my theology classes, or you'll fall for anything. It's important that you actually have some roots and that you actually have truth towards men so that you can have truth towards God or vice versa, but they both go together. So if you don't agree with something, it might be good for you to make sure that you, with truth towards God and men, have the appropriate dialogues that make sure that all men, as far as in your power, are pursuing truth. But the idea to not care, the complacency that would regard ideas such, such as liberty of conscience, these are not trifling things. And those who pay the price of suggesting that wrong choices have been made and wrong paths have been taken, all in the name of security. Perhaps security is not the highest regarded civic value. And I want you to think about these things. But for some reason, when it comes to five qualifying dynamics of godly people, she places the most difficult one at the end. All not being bought or sold is a little bit about flattery. Somebody so desires your influence the devil so desires to distract you that he will provide you with a great paying job when in reality you're called to a low paying job with a great purpose. Being true and honest in your own most soul doesn't cost you much until you do something about it, but living without trueness and honesty in your soul robs you of the peace that passes all understanding. That peace is not to be purchased with the favor of a boss or a colleague or a fellow teacher or a fellow family member. But when it comes to calling sin by its right name, now you start paying the price. But I'm here to tell you this morning, calling sin out is only the beginning, and it's not the hardest part. God actually nerves you for those moments when you're called upon to do it, and if you act inside the great confluence of heavenly agencies, you are empowered to be the person you're to be. But when it comes to being true to duty, hanging in there, sticking with it, seeing it through, and when it comes for standing for right, even though the heavens fall, when it doesn't look like it's working out well, that's a whole nother thing. But if you are misguidedly under the impression that Christianity costs you nothing, let me disabuse you this morning, that it cost our dear Lord everything to reinstate us in the heavenly family, and he said we would share in his suffering. And it is not suffering that takes away our joy as much as the meaninglessness of self-focus. And so I'm appealing to all gathered here today or listening online or who will listen in the future. Christianity has always cost. The other night I put a DVD on 
by Francis Schaeffer, very old, very old, so old that 30-some years ago they were showing them in Meyer Hall when I was a student. And the title of the first one and all of them are How Then Shall We Live? And the first one was the Roman Age. And we're not really subject to watching very often enactments of lions and tigers grabbing the Christians in the Colosseum and dragging them around, but they were enacted in this. And I want you to know for years, the first two centuries of Christianity's experience, its adherents were derided and mocked and scorned and persecuted and martyred. And I want you to know that the work will end in great sacrifice with great commitment because Jesus will be raised up in our midst and we will not be afraid even of death. You see, Jesus has broken the power of death, its fear grip on us. And if he hasn't broken it yet with you, my prayer is that you will give him perfect permission by allowing him to lead you wherever he wants to in regards to sacrificing friend, opportunity, education, career, whatever it might be. The one thing that I think would be most tragic would be for us to come to the end and not have the faith we need and be surprised by our own perfidy, our own falseness. Spirit of Prophecy talks about this. She writes in Acts of the Apostles, God desires his people to prepare for the soon coming crisis. Now listen, that preparation is not sitting around wringing our hands, worried, constantly in a spiritual state of neuroses where there is no fear, there is no confidence. But I'll tell you what, we're going to have to break with the world, embrace the cross, love each other, love the lost, risk dare and do and in the process we're going to be filled with the greatest joy confidence and power of any generation the earth has ever seen and the great showdown between the Goliath of this age and the faithful Davids and Daniels and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego's is going to be the most thrilling drama of the ages recorded in perpetuity in eternity for people to watch now me I've got a few DVDs not very many are worth watching the ones I have, I think, are worth watching. But the few that I watch over and over again, I go to just certain scenes to see it. And I can imagine in heaven some child sitting there in front of whatever jumbotron that heaven has saying, I want to watch that again. Let's watch that again. And we're going to listen to the rage of a Nebuchadnezzar as he stares down three men who show respect and dignity but have bowed before Jesus and they're not bowing before him. We're going to see the great and mighty feats of valor by men and women who have said no to the prince of darkness and yes to the prince of light. But to become that kind of person requires some preparation. There is a crisis and we are to prepare for it. How do we prepare? Well, I'll give you a really simple formula. You take your bulletins home and you memorize this quote and you live by it and you will be prepared. Because God himself is the architect of your faith. He plants the seed. He fertilizes it with his presence, his opportunity, his provision, and divinely constructed, architected, engineered circumstances to where you've got to take a step to become more like a Daniel or more like a David. You just live by this quote, and I guarantee you, you will be put in places where you will see the faithfulness of God. And that, my friends, is how your faith grows. It's God's faithfulness that grows your faith. Prepared or unprepared, they must all meet it. And those only who have brought their lives into conformity to the divine standard will stand firm at the time of test and trial. Now, this sounds a little bit like where we've been. It certainly sounds like where we're going. When secular rulers unite with ministers of religion to dictate in matters of conscience then it will be seen who really fear and serve God. When the darkest, darkness is the deepest, the light of a godlike character will shine the brightest. When every other trust fails, in other words, every other human support system is gone, then it will be seen who have an abiding trust in Jehovah. You don't have enough confidence to talk to your boss? You can't bring that up with your adult child? You're afraid of what your friends are going to think? How in the world will you ever stand to the divine 
or the lack of divine, dastardly acts of a united church and state. There's little trials, folks. That's where we get our strength. You start with little weights. You don't become Mr. Universe overnight. Then it will be seen who have the abiding trust in Jehovah. And while the enemies of the truth are on every side, we call that surrounded, watching the Lord's servants for evil, God will watch over them for good. He will be to them as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. I'm here to tell you this morning when Psalm 39 says that you, he knows a word before you speak it, when God tells us that he surrounds us, when he tells us all our days are written down before any of them came to be, we're dealing with a God that's intimately acquainted with all of our needs. He's asking us to be committed to the needs of the lost. Take your Bibles and open them to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18, I'm going to summarize the story. There's a king that's gone wrong. He's gone very wrong. He's married an evil woman. Her name is Jezebel, 1 Kings chapter 18. She is from one of the most wicked families in one of the most wicked regions that has ever lived on the face of the planet. And somehow, following the worldly wisdom of the age, akin to that of Solomon, all of these royal alliances have landed Israel in a real mess. As a matter of fact, it's gotten so bad that over a period of time, the true priests of God have been murdered, exiled, or hidden away by a prophet named, well, only hidden by Obadiah, murdered and exiled by the regime of Ahab. It turns out that a man came into the court one day, an unknown individual at some level, perhaps better known than we know, but he predicted a drought. He stood in the presence of the king and he said, by God's command, there'll be no dew nor rain until I say so. It was a call to turn away from idolatry, which is one of the great sins of our current age as well. He slipped away from that court and he was directed to three places. He went everywhere God told him to go. He went to the brook Cherith where he was fed by the ravens. He went to the widow of Zarephath where he got the last meal, which turned out to not be the last meal. And then he went to see the king. Those three directions were all ones that he followed. He came upon Obadiah, which, who was remiss that he should actually have this encounter. And he wondered why God would do such a thing to him as to send this villain in the form of a prophet to see him. And he begged Elijah, don't make me go tell the king you're here. But Elijah didn't let him out of the circumstances, but he did promise that he would hang around. And finally, when the king shows up, we've got a little showdown. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to them, is this you, you troubler of Israel? Now, pardon me, but I, I like learning new words. And I, it wasn't that it was automatically a new word to me, but maybe it'll be a new word to you, but I wasn't sure I knew what it meant. The word is obtuse, obtuse. Do you know what the word obtuse means? Obtuse is a word that means one is willfully ignorant or difficult in being willing to recognize or understand something. And you have to ask yourself how obtuse Ahab could be that he should consider Ahab a man with enough power to stop the clouds from forming and the rain from falling. But there is a God behind this man, and there is a God behind you when you're faithful to him, and he's there for you when you're not faithful to him. But when you take a risk in his name, he stands behind you. And this man was allowed to articulate the divine call to accountability. And that call was that eventually the crops won't grow, and the cattle won't low, and the Sheep pen will be empty because nobody will have food or water if you carry on like this. But I also want you to recognize, as I think I've pointed out in about every sermon, that when a person is in the wrong, the easiest thing for them to do is to try to make the person who's pointed it out look like they are in the wrong. Now, when you have to resort to that kind of action, you ought to hope and pray 
that like David wrote after Abigail confronted him, let the righteous smite me and it'll be a bomb to me. Let them strike me and it'll be gladness to my soul. Psalm 141. But let us be sure, friends, that we are people of the truth, not people who have the truth like a set of books on a shelf, but people who are compelled by the spirit of truth to be kind and honest, to be true and gracious. This is what God calls us to. Anything less is dereliction of duty and an abdication of witness to a world that is plunging itself to eternal disaster. And that's why it's imperative that God's people, his parents, his preachers, his teachers, his administrators understand they are administrators of a gracious truth. Not so gracious that you overlook error and not so truthful that you don't present hope, but that you are administrators of a gracious truth. I've always found as a pastor that people can listen to you, and I mean one-on-one, I don't mean from the pulpit, they can listen to you if they sense you really do care, even when you talk about some of the hardest things. There is, no, there is no making up for genuine love, but it is that love that nerves us and sustains us and gives us staying power. Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Don't let it turn you aside. If you are called to stand for right, though the heavens fall, do it. My life is full of interesting stories, one of which I got from an English teacher once. They wrote me quite a letter. It was a rebuke to me because I was talking about something in front of the church that I hadn't talked about individually with somebody yet. The only problem was, was that I wasn't. As a matter of fact, I knew nothing of what he was writing to me about, but I did know this in retrospect, that a student has actually stood or sat, I don't know, we'll say stood for the sake of this sermon, had actually stood and cast a shadow in that English room and had said, I don't feel comfortable reading this literature. That student had the nerve to actually say, hopefully respectfully, I don't think this befits an Adventist education. What that professor thought was that student had come and talked to me and that what I was speaking about from the pulpit was directly related to a backdoor channel in regards to her convictions. The fact of the matter was I knew nothing about it. This is how the Holy Spirit works. He works in perfect He's the master logistician, and if he wants to move on one person's heart about this over here and another person's heart about it over here, he can do it. I can remember when I was a student at Andrews University. Uh, We had a professor in one of the departments, I'll leave it just totally generic, and this professor had problems. I can still remember sitting in the class the day a young uh, female theologian nicely, nicest person I knew of all the people I went through school with in my cohort, nicest person I knew. And that day, the professor said something from the front that wasn't right. This young woman spoke up and said, no, that's not the case. Oh, no, that's only in the writings of Ellen White. She said, no, it's in the Bible. And she very respectfully turned us to the place in Deuteronomy where it was stated and showed exactly that was there. I actually sat on a committee to discuss this individual. I actually sat in the president's office with the president and a number of other young men and women. It's very difficult to deal with difficult situations, but there is a gracious way to do it. There is a Christian way to do it. Truth does still matter. And it's important that we don't go down the road of doing things the way the world does them because the world doesn't understand how to apply the gracious, dignified, but honest dialogues that lead us to a platform of true human togetherness. There is a false human fellowship, Bonhoeffer will write, and there is a true human fellowship. The Bible makes it very clear that when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have true inserted Ron Kelly word, fellowship with one another, and the grace of Jesus Christ cleanses us. You see, God's people around the world are a unique fraternity of brothers and sisters 
because we have embraced the cross, and the cross is lifted high over us, and Jesus is the general of the armies of light, and we follow him. And when we come upon a cross-caring Christian, especially a cross-caring Seventh-day Adventist who has embraced the theological rejection of our unique beliefs. In other words, they've come across the line and they say, we don't believe in eternal hellfire. We believe in a heavenly sanctuary. We believe in a God whose judgment is vindicating. We don't believe that when you die, you rush up to heaven or you hurry into hell. We believe in a literal, visible second coming. We believe in a fourth commandment that still is not only applicable, but, but profitable and practical. We believe in a prophet at the end of the age and a prophetic gift for the whole church, not just that prophet. That's what we believe. And when you run into somebody who's embraced the cross halfway around the world, you feel a special bond. That fellowship was not in place between Ahab and Elijah. He was unwilling to bend the knee to truth, so he had to make the truth the enemy. And that's what people still do. So don't be surprised when you find yourself called the enemy when you're really the deliverer. He said, without missing a beat, I have not troubled Israel. But you and your father's house have troubled Israel and followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather among all the sons of Israel. Gather to me at Mount Carmel together with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. It's superbly important for us to understand that real confidence comes from real humility. When you're willing to obey the voice of the Lord and the story's not about you, you have your best chance of standing up the right way and standing for the right, though the heavens fall. Elijah was not undone by the display of power. Ahab was not there by himself. He had his royal retinue and his palace guard and their gleaming armor all around him. It was truth to power like few times we see, and it was a humble truth which had true power. Verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people don't dare to say a word. There might be somebody there writing their names down. And by the way, did you hear about the fact, this is not made up conspiratorial stuff, that the government is actually gathering a database of all those who wanted religious exemptions from the COVID vaccine? I mean, I wish I could make it up and you could tell me I'm a conspiracist. You don't think that day in the crowd there were a few people there paying attention to see who was sympathetic to the troublemaker? Come on. Humanity hasn't changed. We stand in the shadow, as it were, of a great number of cowardice and cowardly people throughout the ages. Good news is there are some people who are willing to raise their head, raise their hand, raise their voice, and stand in a fearless and erect posture and say, you know what? I think Elijah's right, but nobody did. So gather us together there and let's have a showdown. Then Elijah said to the people something which he'll say to God later on. It wasn't quite true. He said in verse 22, I alone am left of the prophet of the Lord. But that's how he felt. And you need to remember something. In the book of James chapter 5, it says Elijah was a man who basically had the same emotional propensities we do. And after three years on the run, on the lamb, as it were, as, a, as the most wanted criminal of the nation, this is exactly how he's feeling. And when nobody will say anything, he feels that way even on Mount Carmel. I'm alone and left of the prophet of the Lord. The Baal's prophets were 450, and of course, there's 400 priests of Ashtra there as well. Now, let them give us two oxen and let them choose. And of course, we know the rest of the story. I'm not going to read it all, but we know that there's two altars that will be built there. And the Baal worshipers get to go first, and they hoot and they holler, and Elijah's got to pay attention because we don't want any hanky-panky in this thing or else it'll be his life. If their altar starts on fire, his life goes out. 
And so he's watching them. About noon, he mocks them, not because mocking is a tremendous attribute of Christian nobility, but because they had such a power over the minds of the nation that he had to display in the rawest terms their falseness, their evil, their darkness, their deception. There are times when some pretty unpleasant dialogues have to take place. And finally, at the end of the day, as the blood has stained the ground and the voices of the Baal worshipers have gone hoarse, Elijah says, come to me. And he goes to a spot and he takes 12 stones that have been part of an altar in earlier days and he rebuilds it. And, and we are in a position, friends, of rebuilding the altar to the truth, not just 28 fundamental beliefs compounded in a book, but to the truth that has complete hold on us. The other day I did worship at the church school and I told the kids a story. And I don't know if the person I'm going to talk about is listening to me right now or not. They might be. I'm not going to use any names, but there's a person in this church who has found me in the hallway more than once. And they have told me, they have told me about a person that attends this church who 30-some years ago stood up for them as a picked-on person. Why should that person find me more than once and remind me that this, two women, by the way, that this woman stood up for me? You know, adolescence is a terrible time of life. I hate to say it. All this unsureness about who I am. Am I pretty? Am I smart? Am I athletic? Am I strong? Am I this? Am I that? And of course, you look in the mirror and you stare at yourself and you wonder, how can anybody love me? Why would anybody want me? Of course, there are some who are self, so self-assured they've drunk the Kool-Aid of the modern affirmation age and they don't have those doubts. But any honest person has to say, why me? And all you need to do is turn with the, with the devices of the devil and get a little bit of joy out of picking on somebody else. But I'll tell you what. Oh, do I admire those people who stand up for the underdogs, the picked on, the, the, the underbelly, as it were, of the social strata. Those are the real heroes, and that's why that person has told me that story more than once. And I admire that person who stood up for this lady. And I want to tell you, friends, this is the kind of truth that gets a hold of somebody that says, you know what? The cross compels me to take a risk. The cross compels me to have some compassion. The cross directs me to stand in the way of this kind of behavior. This is what will make us the bright lights at the end of the age. Not the backstage gossip sessions where we can proclaim our subtle but not undeniable arrogance or hubris or smartness. Yes, nobody will speak up. And finally, at the end of the day of hooting and hollering, he gathers the stones together and he prepares the bowl and he digs a trench and he fills it with water, that precious commodity. And then he gathers everybody very, very close. He wants them to hear what he's about to pray. And I want to tell you, what gives you the power to stand fearless and erect before earthly monarchs is what Ellen White writes of John the Baptist. He had bowed low before the king of kings. Listen. There is nothing that will prepare you for the end of time like your own living relationship with Jesus because he's the architect, the builder, and the finisher of your faith. So if day by day you let him put a few more bricks in the wall, he'll, he'll build a Taj Mahal of glory, not to you, but to him. But when you skip those moments and you tell the grand architect of the universe, sorry, got too many other important things to do, well, you just go through the day without the divine touch which means somebody else goes through the day without the divine touch. I'm appealing to you. You don't have anything to be afraid of in the future except that you turn away from a divine encounter which sets you up to turn away from an encounter that's divinely architected for the sake and well-being of yourself, somebody else, your society, your school, your marriage, your family. Yes, there's nothing like the conscience innocence of being right with God to make you a brave and kind and dignified person. But you surrender that by watching things on the television or your phone you shouldn't watch. You surrender that by salacious reading or out of control living of some other manner or sort. 
The absolute unfettered pursuit of academic excellence, no matter if you step on your relationship with God to get there, you do all of that and you'll just be keeping your head down and you won't be the one who's making a shadow. You won't be the stand-up person in a bow-down world. That kind of courage only comes from God. It's not in us. You don't have it. I don't have it. And I want to tell you, three years of being on the run had done its damage to Elijah's life. He had faith. It's not that he didn't have any sense of God's presence. He did. But there was, it appears, an expectation that wasn't going to work out exactly the right way. So he gathers them very near and he prays this prayer. We'll start with verse 36 of chapter 18. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, today, God, I need you to show up right here, right now, today. Why? Because there's a whole nation hanging in the balance. Because my life is hanging in the balance. Today, let it be known that you are the God in Israel, number one request, Number two, that I am your servant, divine vindication at one level, but it needs to get more specific. Request number three, and I have done these things at your word. So the troubler of Israel is God himself. Think about it. Think about it. If you're going to dig a hole and the pit is so deep you'll never get out of it, God might stand in your way. If you're off the rails or the bridge is out, God might just try to hold you back. And for the willful, rebellious heart, like that prodigal son, the father might look like the enemy until the mud and the feces is all around him and the stomach is empty and he says, Ah, I see. Even the slaves back at home are doing better than me. Yes, God is sometimes the troubler. And if you're a parent or an employee or a friend or a spouse and things aren't good, you need to pray, Lord, contend with those who contend with me. You need to pray Psalm 35. Could we look that for a minute? Flip over to the book of Psalms. Psalms 35. These are actual prayers that are recorded in the Bible. Psalm 35, I have Isaiah 49, 25 written in the margin of my Bible next to it because it sounds a lot like that prayer so many parents pray. Psalm 35, verse 1, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. But it gets a lot more specific. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul... I'm your salvation. Let those, who be ashamed, let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life or my job or whatever it might be or my reputation. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like the chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they've hid their net from me. Without cause they've dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon them unawares and let the net which he hid catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. You see, there's a reason the Bible says vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, because humans don't do a very good job at it. But when your heart is in anguish and you're afraid, when you're not sure how it's going to turn out, when your convictions make it look like the clouds are lowering down around you, when the voice of Chicken Little is echoing in your ear, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. When it looks like everything's going to come undone, you need to pray the prayer of Psalm 35, Lord, be my salvation. And of course, be humble enough to pray, Lord, if I'm wrong, show me. Elijah wasn't praying that prayer because he had prayed that prayer ahead of time. He had humbled his soul to the point of obedience. Verse 40 of 1 Kings 18. Then the Lord said to them. Actually, let's make sure we get it all. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell. I want you to hear it. I want you to see the lightning flash. I want you to hear the thunder rumble. I want you to feel the ground shake. I want you to hear the smell in the air of the burnt offering. 
And I want you to hear the people calling out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal and don't let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and he slew them there. And then he said to King Ahab, you better get ready to go because it's going to rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. He crouched down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. Now I want to show you, God knows the fragility of human instruments. He does. Elijah's gone from being the villain to the hero. And that's dangerous for Elijah. Because he's tempted to think his security is in the manifestation of divine power. But I'm here to tell you, divine power has its limits on impressing the hearts of people. And so he goes up there where he can see it. That is the Mediterranean Sea. And he bows down and he puts his face to the ground and he starts praying, Lord, you stop the rain, now bring it. And he sends his servant after a little season of prayer while Elijah's eating his food, Ahab. And the servant comes back and he says, it's a cloudless sky. And Elijah goes back to praying again. You see, in the midst of this mighty manifestation of power, it's important for Elijah to not fall into the same kind of mistakes that Moses made when he struck the rock the second time, somehow thinking that he's got the power to call water out of a rock or rain out of the sky. And he prays six times, no answer. It's going to be very clear to Elijah that it is God's power provision that's going to turn things around. But finally, there appears a cloud about the size of a man's hand. And Elijah says, that's it. We need to leave. He rushes up to Ahab's chariot and he says, it's time to go. He grabs the bridle and he runs the probably about 11 miles, I think it is, down the hillside of this mountain all the way up to the gates of the city. How do you run 11 miles with horses? The rain is so so heavy that is God's divine deliverance of Ahab through the seriousness of this storm that gets them all the way back to the gate. He's splattered with mud everywhere. He's completely doused with the deluge from the sky, but he stops at the gate to the city and says, I'm not going in. I'll stay outside. Ahab goes in it is the most amazing thing any human eyes in that generation has ever seen. Fire from heaven. And by the way, 850 of your men are gone. The evil inside this woman will not be touched by the witness of divine power. Listen to me. God may step in and work a miracle when it looks like the sky is falling, and he may still not change the hearts of the people you're dealing with. You need to think about it. She sends a message post haste. You go tell him he'll be number 851 before the sun's down. It was just too much. He woke up. He had wrong expectations. He thought the Reformation was out of the box and underway and nothing could stop it, but he didn't properly estimate the power of an evil person. And he jumps up and he runs. He runs all the way down to Beersheba. His probably youthful mentoree can't keep up with him. He leaves him behind. He gets far enough into the woods where he thinks nobody will find him. And I don't know if he bothers to kneel down and pray or if he just lays down and says, God, it's, it's over. I've, I've had enough. Let me die. We don't know everything that happened. <laughs> but I will tell you this. There was a retinue of angels around him because the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him to deliver him. And they didn't need to run a day's journey or two away from Jezreel to do it. And while he's laying there on the ground, God bakes a loaf of bread, a cake, on hot stones and provides a pitcher of water. And this wonderfully, I mean, people love to go to these places now. You know, it's oven-fired pizza, wood-baked wood pizza. I mean, 
God provides the best of the best the farthest away from where you'd naturally find it. And I mentioned this in the early days of the COVID uh, crisis when I did a series, a series called Christ, Confidence in Crisis. And I pointed out there is no prophet in all of the Bible for which more miracles of food are associated than this one. If we're going to have the Elijah message, we're going to need the Elijah experience. And you know what? Needing the Elijah experience is going to get itself to the place where when the sky's not delivering rain and the ground's not delivering food, you're not afraid because he promised you your bread and your water will be sure. But if you never take a risk for God, if you don't have enough humility to be obedient, to be obedient, then you're going to be in a position where you'll come unprepared to the final crisis. But if you'll let God say it, let God poke you and say, yeah, you, I want you to say something. Yeah, you, I want you to do something. Yeah, you, it's your two might moment. Yeah, you. That's how you get prepared. You don't have to worry because every single day is a day of preparation. If you bowed low before the king of kings and you said, Lord, I put all my plans before you to be made or remade, He's the one that's got it under control when he speaks to you in a meeting like this or in your private encounter with God. And you're certain he's saying, do it. If you're not certain, find a godly person to see if you're just going bonkers or if that's how the spirit works. But once you're sure he's prompting, you gotta go. You gotta move. Otherwise, you're by bypassing the education of the end, which is the graduate degree in crisis encounters. Two times he lays there wishing that it could all be over and two times God does the same thing and finally, fathom this, God's people can be provided by food but God's people can be sustained without food. <laughs> he goes 40 days. He runs from Beersheba in southern Israel all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula to where the Ten Commandments were delivered because he thinks he'll be safe there. <laughs> and he goes 40 days without eating. So if we come to a point in the future where it appears that there's no food on the planet and there's certainly none in our house or our tent or, or wherever we're living, you can be okay with that because if God wants to sustain you for 40 days without you putting anything through the jaws and down the esophagus, he can do it. Can anybody say amen? amen. Listen. Your future sustenance is a function of God's faithfulness. And at the moment that you miss a chance to discover how faithful he is, that's the key thing you don't want to lose. But you've got to suffer a little bit on the way. We may go through a few hunger pains. We may be a little chilly at times. But we might ought to have a few workups now where God says, you know, uh, those people over there in Eastern Europe need a little more of what you've got. You need a little less. Or those people in Central America need a little something more than what you've got. By the way, I think we probably ought to do something for the people in Ukraine at some point in time, don't you think? How many images of People carrying blood-stained baby blankets can you look at before your heart's moved? How many stories of bombed-out maternity units can you listen to before you either go cold or you go to action? He gets all the way down there, and he finds a cave on the side of the hill, the mountain, where the Ten Commandments were given, and he thinks to himself, Everything will be okay now. Don't you like the fact that the Bible records the frady cat moments of other human beings? Don't you take just a little bit of hope that you're not just way out? Isn't it good that David feigned madness before Achish? I mean, he acted like he was insane. He drooled on his own beard. Aren't you glad some of those stories are written down? so that when you do something the same vein and you get a little farther, aren't you glad Peter, at some sense, aren't you glad the story's written down? Not that it happened, but aren't you glad he said three times to two women, you don't know what you're talking about. Aren't you glad the story tells us he went back to Gethsemane and cried 
and figured that his connection with Jesus was over. Aren't you glad that's written down? What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, they're killing your people up there, God, and I'm the last one. Go stand out on the mountain. There's a quake, there's wind, and then there's a familiar noise. You know, fire, it came down on Mount Carmel. Now it's blowing across the side of the mountain. It was there on the mountain for Moses. Now it's there on the mountain for Elijah. And if you need fire, God can send it to you too, but you don't need fire half as much as you need something else, which is that still small voice saying to you, I'm here. I'm God. At the end of that trilogy of manifestations from heaven, Elijah's back in the recesses of the cave and God calls him back out and he says the same thing and God says, it's time for you to go home. I want you to anoint Ahaziel and Jehu and Elisha and I want you to remember something. There are 7,000 other people just like you. This morning, this afternoon, the question that is imperative for all of us is, do we care to be one of those 7,000? It was 7,000, then it's 144, according to the book of Revelation. I suspect they're both symbolic numbers with a large ability to absorb as many faithful as faithful want to be. But I'm here to tell you this morning, friends, God's not into people-pleasing. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare those ministers writing in Prophets and Kings, page 141, who are men-pleasers who cry peace, peace, when God has not spoken peace, might well humble their hearts before God, asking for pardon from their insincerity and their lack of moral courage. It is not from love for their neighbor that they smooth down the message entrusted to them, but because they're self-indulgent and ease-loving. True love seeks first the honor of God and the salvation of souls. And those who have this love will not evade the truth to save themselves from the unpleasant results of plain speaking. God cannot use men, next page over, who in times of peril, when the strength, courage, and influence of all are needed, who are afraid to take a firm stand for what's right. He calls for men who will do faithful battle against wrong, warring against principalities and powers, and against the rulers of darkness in this world. The Lord abhors indifference and disloyalty in a time of crisis in his work. The whole universe, whoa, sit down, listen. The whole universe is watching with inexpressible interest the closing scenes of the great controversy between good and evil. The people of God are nearing the borders of the eternal world. What can be of more importance than that they be loyal to the God of heaven? All through the ages, God has had his moral heroes, and he has them now. Those who, like Joseph and Elijah and Daniel, are not ashamed to acknowledge themselves his peculiar people. And by the way, especially for some who are listening to me right now, it's important for you to know that you are not to abandon your post of duty to save your own soul. And I'd be glad to provide you with a reference. So let's end it this way. The greatest want of the world is the want of men who can't be bought or sold. Temptation number three, bow down, Jesus, if you're really God, and I'll give you all this. Jesus says no. The greatest want of the world are men who are true and honest in their inmost souls. After feeding 5,000 people, they wanted to make him king. His disciples wanted to make him king, and he said to the disciples, get into the boat, and he dismissed the crowd, and it was the beginning of a major turning away because he would not let them fulfill their popular hopes and wishes. 
The greatest one of the world is for those who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Read Matthew 23. Go to the feast at Simon's house when he looks at Judas and says, leave her alone. Listen, as he talks to Simon, he says, I came into your house. You gave me nothing to wash my feet. You gave me no kiss of greeting. And by the way, you're responsible for her life of sin, which he didn't say, but Simon knew he knew and knew he meant. Those that are true to duty is the needle to the pole. I want you to kneel with him in the garden of Gethsemane and watch the blood squeezed out from his pores and listen to him cry. Lord, Father, if there's any way, could we not do it like this? And I want you to see him hanging on a cross. Everybody ran away. Everybody was cowardly. The bravest person that day other than Jesus appears to have been a criminal who would call him Lord and a centurion who would say, surely this was the Son of God. In the deathly silence after the earth had quaked and reeled and everybody was laying in piles, the first voice you hear is the leader of 100 saying, truly this was the Son of God. God. Yes, Jesus, you can stand in his shadow. He is the shadow maker. You can walk with him all the way to the kingdom. Will you be afraid at times? Yes. Will you suffer? Yes. Will you feel alone? Yes. Will you wonder if the sky is falling like Chicken Little said? Yes. But he said, peace be still. He's in charge of the sky. And he said, I will never, never leave you or forsake you. This closing song is a prayer. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I feign to take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. I'm appealing to everyone who listens to this message live or later. He is calling you to be the education, page 57, man or woman or child. And may God give you the courage, borne up by love and sustained by divine devotion, to fulfill this amazing invitation to be light in the midst of darkness, hope in the midst of hopelessness, love in the midst of lovelessness, compassion and kindness. The greatest one of the world remains the same. And today he's calling you to take your stand. It's between you and God. May there be no abdication in this hour of great, great darkness.